today on Ag News Daily. Potential of picking some garlic corn before soybeans, which is something we have not done since 2012. I do feel like it's going to be a little bit on the earlier side. Overall, I, my anticipation of yields from, from the hail that came early, we're going to be off quite a bit. Good morning, Ag News Daily listeners. It's August 19th, 2022. Tanner Winterhoff joined by Delaney Howell. What do you think about that? Should we start putting the date on these shows so listeners know when this got recorded? Yeah, that probably makes sense, doesn't it, Tanner? Since uh, we're not doing Ag News Weekly. That's true. Today is August 19th. Tanner, I'm heading to the state fair today to volunteer at the Iowa Pork Producers Pork Tent. Will you be at the state fair this weekend or have you gone yet? No, and I unfortunately think this is going to be one of my first years of not making it. Things have just uh, gotten busy. Uh, I think my family, I think uh, my parents and children will be going today, but I don't think I'm going to be able to make it there unless I try to sneak down this evening. Well, you better sneak out because it only happens once a year and it's the best time of year. And nothing compares to the Iowa State Fair. We we had a set of brothers interviewed on the Farm Profit podcast this week that would come out in September that drove here from Michigan and uh, they wanted to know what to do while they were in the area. We told them they had to go see everything at the Iowa State Fair. We sent them on a wild goose chase of seeing all the favorite things that Corey and I enjoy seeing when we're down there. Well, I love that. We could put our listeners together a Iowa State Fair scavenger hunt next year, maybe. Yeah, that uh, sounds like a lot of work. You're welcome to take it on. I tell you what, though, Delaney, the Andersons have a lot of work ahead of them as well. So the Andersons were fined $1.7 million on Clean Air Act violations for four of their ethanol plants. So ethanol producer Anderson's Marathon will pay a record $1.7 million in penalties for numerous violations at their four ethanol plants in Iowa, Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio. The EPA announced Wednesday that the settlement was, uh, has now been a consent decree filed with the EPA. They exceeded the threshold of quantities for toxic chemicals such as ammonia, formic acid, arsalin, Methanol, benzene, e-hexine, tulene, all these words that I don't recognize. And the last one is formaldehyde. So this was between 2015 and 2019. The community has a right to know because of the Community Right to Know Act. The Emergency Planning Division of the EPA has done their assessments and are looking to collect fines on 99 violations in EPA's Region 5 and 32 violations in region seven. So Anderson Marathon has since then corrected their release issues. And in 2020 cited additional measures for measuring the quantity of these chemicals being released and future reporting will be ramped up as well. So Anderson Marathon's plants are in Logansport, Indiana, Albion, Michigan, Greenville, Ohio, and Denison, Iowa. Just a reminder listeners, the EPA is committed to protecting people from pollution and taking action to ensure facilities are reporting the releases in accurate and timely fashion. And this is an example set by the EPA using Anderson's Marathon as a, I'm not going to say scapegoat, but it seems like it's definitely an item of focus. 
So Tanner, the EPA also has another item of focus. They released a, released a new draft ecological risk assessment on Thursday, which found that herbicide dicamba uh, potentially adversely affects birds, mammals, bees, freshwater fish, aquaculture, vascular plants, and non-target terrestrial plants with the, quote, primary risk of concern for non-target terrestrial plants through spray drift and volatilization. In addition to that, the agency said that it found no evidence of new measures put in place in October 2020 for over-the-top applications helped to reduce the number of off-target incidents. So it doesn't sound like those new practices have really changed anything for over-the-top applications slash off-target incidents. But they said that numerous non-target plant incidents have been reported to be associated with the use of dicamba. The EPA, you know, we regularly see them conducting reviews of these different pesticides and active ingredients every 15 years. I didn't realize this, Tanner, but dicamba has actually been around since 1967. So it's, this is just one of those 15-year reviews that the EPA is doing. And they said now that they have launched a 60-day public comment period on the latest assessment. And from there, uh, they said they will create a new proposed interim decision set for completion in 2023. So we could see some things change once again for Dicamba. Yeah. And uh, it is just interesting that this is part of a routine registration review for Dicamba. And the other thing I thought was quite interesting is the primary risk of concern is for non-target terrestrial plants. They're not as concerned about the birds, the mammals, the mm-hmm. bees, the fish. So quite quite interesting to see the focus that the EPA is putting there. And now I'm I don't, don't like reporting on opinion articles, but I did come across an opinion source in the Washington Examiner. That gives perspective in another light on an FDA ruling. So the actual news is that the FDA is moving ahead to ban almond milk. That's the uh, headline there. They're not banning almond milk, but they have officially ruled to no longer allow and permit the use of milk for anything that is not considered cow's milk. So governed by the FDA, the United States Constitution, this opinion article states, is the FDA is going against the Constitution. So quite interesting that terms such as coconut milk, almond milk, and oat milk will now no longer be FDA approved as titling for something that is not cow's milk. So then this uh, opinion article continued to write about uh, what about goat's milk, you know, continued to throw out a lot of different sides there. But the fact of this is, is the FDA has officially made their move to determine that the labeling milk can only be used for milk from a cow. And the tricky part, Delaney, is I did do some diver, some deep diving into this. And the First Amendment obviously creates a little bit of an issue here. So I expect for us to report on some eventual lawsuits following this rule um, because there were some court cases in Florida for a uh, famous case, Mary Lou's skim milk that I uncovered, where she was skimming the milk after the cream was created, but it is not actually skim milk according to the FDA's label requirements. 
However, the court upheld her ability to label that as skim milk because it is still milk from a cow. And the skim is a descriptive word for her product. So with freedom of speech, she was able to continue down that pipeline. So Bellini, I just would anticipate we'll be reporting on some potential new lawsuits coming out in the next couple of days in regards to the First Amendment. But there you go. FDA has heard the uh, lobbying side of the dairy industry. And for the time being, no longer can you call it milk without it being milk from a cow. Well, that seems like a big win there for the dairy industry. Yes, it is. Tanner, it's also a win for Africa, as we have seen the first post-blockade food aid ship leave Ukraine for Djibouti and grain for Ethiopia as well. But on Tuesday, we saw the first food aid bound ship head to Africa, which, you know, I talked to a lot of farmers from all over the world and African farmers certainly have been calling into question what this post kind of Russia-Ukraine situation looks like because a lot of them do get food assistance and primary resources from that Black Sea region. So this is the first, hopefully, of many that will head to that area as we continue to talk about potential food shortages and famine. That area certainly is one area that a lot of folks are watching and calling into question about how those people will potentially be fed, Tanner. So this is definitely a historic shipment that has left Ukrainian ports. It is historic, and I can't help but on a Friday episode make a joke about Djibouti. Uh, it's unfortunate that the child in me can't let that slide by. It is great news that a shipment has continued by, but if we have a bunch of middle schoolers listening, they will appreciate the destination in which that shipment had gone. Staying on the African side of things, John Deere has invested in Africa's Hello Tractor. So the Deer and Company is uh, working with Hello Tractor, a Nigeria headquartered marketplace for fleet management and technology for African farmers to rent tractors. The startup, Hello Tractor, was one of the first participants in John Deere's startup collaborator, collaborator program, which launched in 2019 to help the company engage with tech startups and stay ahead of innovation with formal partnerships. John Deere's Director of Ag and Turf Sales and Marketing for Africa and Asia said that Hello Tractor aligns with the business's leaps ambitions. They aim to see 100% of small ag connectivity enabled by 2026. He said the deal also presents an opportunity for Deere to learn from the Hello Tractor marketplace and how it connects with its customers to solve problems in the markets of Africa and Asia. So sustainable food security in these regions will require new solutions and persistent fixes to problems in agriculture, but the costs matched with some of the technology and mechanization levels make it difficult for farmers to make those jumps in their production system right now. It's exciting to see the energy behind this new startup to direct towards availability for mechanization in production agriculture. So a good partner there for Hello Tractor in Africa, and it'll be interesting to see if we get any types of this program set up here in our listeners' territory in the United States. Right, because the premise of Hello Tractor, if I'm not mistaken, Tanner, is kind of like a sharing method, right, where farmers can rent it from other farmers, and it's a joint asset. That's correct. Whether it is owned by a farm itself or by an investment firm, 
That is correct. You only have to pay when you need to use the machine. Therefore, it can be shared across multiple operations. Yeah, that will be interesting. I would be curious to see if there are already farmers in the U.S. that do that, because I know, you know, generationally, we do that with grandparents, parents, and current generation. But it'd be interesting to see if we do that, or if that'll take off across different farms in you know, regional areas as well. I had seen a program that has since disappeared that was trying to connect mainly combine use and planter use amongst different regions in the United States. For example, if you were running your corn combine in Texas, you would normally finish harvest before those in Iowa. So it was looking to provide connections amongst growers and uh, it didn't end up working. I don't know why it wasn't still around. Could have possibly just been an acquisition, Uh, but it looked like there was at least an attempt in the most recent years. Well, I think the only question mark that, uh, you know, you have there is we already see custom planting and custom combining. So maybe there's not a marketplace for that in the U.S. Who knows? But Tanner, speaking of marketplace, Brazil's marketplace is likely going to see a drop in sugarcane production for the 22-23 growing season only expected to drop about 1% as of right now, according to the latest CONAB report put out earlier this morning on Friday, citing adverse weather conditions during the growing season. But sugar output is going to be seen about 3% lower this year, while the country's total ethanol production, which of course is mostly corn-based, is expected to be up about 1.6%. So we're seeing some crop move away from sugarcane production and more towards the ethanol side of things this year. Hey, there you go. And staying on the fuel side of things, last piece I have for today is oil prices have continued to drop by a quarter since June. Could fall even further if a nuclear deal is reached with Iran. So bringing potential more crude to the market if Iran ships more as exports. Of course, we know back in March, When Moscow invaded Ukraine, oil soared to over $140 a barrel. Obviously, those concerns have been realized, not subsided, but been realized. Traders are now concerned that the demand will fall off due to various factors that we've discussed here on our podcast before. Fears of recession, stronger dollar, weakening Chinese oil imports. Obviously, we reported on the Chinese economy that earlier this week, lingering COVID, you know, other commodity uh, that other commodities, such as what you described in the ethanol, continuing to push additional supplies into the market. And of course, oil prices are set in dollars. So with a strong dollar, that makes oil more expensive for importers as well. The price of Brent, the international benchmark has dropped to $95, while the U.S. main contracts are around 90. Of course, we've seen fuel prices drop at the pump here in the United States, but uh, quite interesting. Some experts are projecting that Brent prices will climb back to $125 a barrel by the end of the year as Russia exports fall, or as Russian exports fall and Chinese import demand potentially could rise. Obviously, again, Iran is that wild card delaney that we will want to keep a look on because if they reached their nuclear deal that would allow the country to raise its exports and that may keep oil prices low. So that's the last piece I have on today's Friday edition. Well, Tanner, 
the Catalan feed reports may impact today's markets as well and keep them low, but that will be released after the market closed today. So we really won't see markets trade that news until Monday. We'll also start to see markets reacting to the yield estimates coming out of next week's Pro Farmer Crop Tour, which starts, of course, on Monday in both the eastern and western leg. Going to be chatting with a few of those folks on the crop tour next week, so do stay tuned for that to get some insider information. But Tanner, as we head into the opening markets this morning, we're seeing a little bit of mixed trade this morning, light trade in the corn markets as December corn is trading right around neutral to positive at that 616 mark. New crop soybeans are down on the morning, trading right around 1398, heading into opening and wheat finally is starting to see some green on the screen as the September contract is trading right around 736, up about five pennies on the morning in the cattle and lean hog complex having the opposite story as we're continuing to see some negative trade there, Tanner. But like I said, we have that cattle on feed report coming out later today. So we will see the markets largely trade that news on Monday. In the meantime, live cattle in the October contract down about a dollar ten this morning at a buck forty-four. September feeders down a buck eighty-five right at that one eighty-five mark. And October lean hogs down about four seventy-five on the morning. And markets are getting ready to open up here shortly and we'll see where they trade for today. But, you know, as we talk about next week's Pro Farmer Crop Tour, Tanner, there is going to be, I'm sure, some interesting yields coming out of Nebraska. And to give us a little insight into what we could expect ahead of next week's tour, we're chatting today with Michael Bergen, a farmer in Aurora, Nebraska. Well, folks, as we continue to creep closer to harvest season, we are chatting today with Mike Bergen, a farmer in Aurora, Nebraska. Mike, thank you, first of all, so much for joining us today. I've been noticing that you have been sharing a lot of weather-related posts on Twitter here over the past couple of months. Before we get to talking about that, tell us a little bit about your farming operation there in Nebraska. All right. Thank you for um, having me today. My farm operation is a little bit unique. Um, I'm a first-generation farmer. Um, I was not born and raised on the farm. had the opportunity to start farming after college and jumped at the idea. It was something I had always dreamed of. I um, just didn't know I'd have the opportunity. And when the opportunity arose, it was something I had to had to take. So I'm in, in my 17th year. Um, I still consider myself kind of young in the game, but also realizing that that I've started to see quite a bit of cycles and and um, experienced quite a bit in, in 17 years of farming now. Well, Mike, before we get into your weather discussions on Twitter and your crop outlook for this fall, can you touch a little bit more on that first generation aspect of your farm and what you plan to do if you're planning to pass this on to the next generation and create a generational farm like a lot of others? Yes, absolutely. That would be my goal um, is to create a generational farm. I have two boys who are twins. They are nine and a half years old. It is an absolute privilege to be able to raise them on the farm. My wife grew up on a farm and we live six miles from her parents. So she, she kind of knew what she was getting into. Very, feel very blessed to have the opportunity to raise my boys on the farm, something that I didn't get to do, even though I 
grew up around a lot of farms and worked for farmers. Um, I didn't get that opportunity to do every day. So yeah, my, my farm, it, it started with one, one quarter, 150 acres. And um, over the last 17 years, I've, I've grown it to be a sustainable farm that can provide for my family. And we raise irrigated corn, dryland corn, irrigated soybeans, and a little bit of alfalfa and hay. So Mike, we got to get to it here and discuss your weather outlook. Like I said, you've been sharing a lot of weather updates on Twitter. It looks like you guys have experienced rain, hail, and I'm sure all sorts of other things Mother Nature has thrown your way. But how's the crop looking this year? Yeah, the the last 13, 14 months, the, the weather has been something that I have not seen in the last 17 years, um, really. I mean, I've probably seen all of them, but not in, in such a short span. You know, last July, I was hit 80 to 90 mile an hour winds lost my bins, lost substantial corn crop. And then this year we were, we absolutely had zero snow over the winter. Um, we were really, really dry going into the spring, raised a lot of uncertainty. And, and, and I say that tongue in cheek because we do have, we're very blessed with, with very good water for irrigation. But um, like I said, not all of it is irrigated, but we don't want to pump any more than we have to. It is definitely a cost to us and, and, Lot of very labor intensive to do so. Started off the spring, got the corn in the ground, um, started getting some rains and got the crop up and going. And then June 7 hit, um, we were hit with hail and 80, 90 mile an hour winds. There was hundreds of pivots down and thousands upon thousands of acres um, have to be replanted, both corn and soybeans. I was fortunate enough, I just had to replant 120 acres of soybeans. And then seven days later, um, when I was getting ready to replant soybeans, we were hit with another hailstorm, and that caught the rest of my acres, or the rest of my corn crop. We were about V8 at the time, and we were at 80, 90% defoliation. Came in and did a rescue um, with some fungicide on some of the acres and left some of them to see how they would respond. Then we, you know, we've had some rain. I would say timely rain. Any rain is timely, but um, we have caught some rain, but the the, this summer has is, is just been something else. The first 15 days of August, we had 13 days above average temperature and all of them were over 90. Um, mm-hmm. We're sitting wow. in a little bit of a cool spell this week at low 80s, which feels amazing. Um, but it is, the, this summer has just really been something else weather-wise. So with all these weather challenges throughout the summer and the spring, how do you predict your fall and your harvest is going to go? I do think harvest is going to be a little bit on the earlier side. We probably average start um, with soybeans around the 20th to 25th of September. I, I think we're going to be a tick ahead of that this year and potentially our dryland corn, depending on what happens here the next three weeks, the dryland corn starch line, I just pulled some ears today. The starch line is about three quarter of the way down. So um, we're going to see black layer, you know, in the next couple of weeks and, and that dryland corn is going to, going to dry down really fast. So potential of picking some dryland corn before soybeans, which is something we have not done since 2012. I do feel like it's going to be a little bit on the earlier side. Overall, I, my anticipation of yields from, from the hail that came early, we're going to be off quite a bit. Hamilton County and York County, the two counties I farm in are uh, two of the top producing counties in the state of Nebraska and, and ranked in the top 10 nationally. So I'm really in the heart of corn country here. And I, I think we're going to see probably 20 to 40 bushel off um, our expectations on the corn. 
Um, soybeans, it's, it's hard to tell. I, I don't ever want to put, put a number behind that. I, I do think we're going to be off. I, I think the replant beans are, are definitely going to be off. The other beans might, might hit our APH and our, our 10 year history. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, you know, next week we've got the pro farmer crop tour, of course, to see what kind of yields they're pulling out of the field. But that's a pretty significant hit to yield that you may be expecting there on the corn side of things. But aside from weather challenges, have there been any, any disease-related challenges or pest-related challenges this year that you've been having to deal with as well? Yeah, I, I mean, we've kind of seen it all. I, the, probably the biggest thing we've been battling is Japanese beetles. Um, the last two, three years, the Japanese beetles, they, they come into the beans, they feed on the leaves. We try to spray them, they move over to the corn, um, and, and we hope they don't move to the corn before, um, before silking so we can get some pollination done. But I, there's, there's not a silk left in the cornfield. They, they've eaten them off. Um, as far, I don't think we've seen any tar spot reported in, in York or Hamilton County. A um, little bit of gosses wilt coming in, but for the most part, and a gray leaf, we have a little bit of gray leaf spot every year, but for the most part, um, disease pressure would probably be fairly normal. Um, I would assume that about 80%, 80 to 90% of our corn acres are, are sprayed with aerial fungicide. Um, and, and that seems to hold it off pretty good right now. But Japanese beetles early um, had a little bit of corn rootworm and, and some Western bean, but those are pretty easily controlled with aerial applications. Well, Mike, we really appreciate you joining us today. I think it's great for our listeners and other farmers to hear that they're not the only ones struggling and that it's going to be a struggle for everyone, but everyone in the farming world, as we know, is resilient and is ready to face these challenges. So we wish you a really happy and great harvest and that it goes even better than you're predicting. And for our listeners, where can they find you and follow you on Twitter to learn what we've learned? You can follow me on Twitter at Michael underscore Bergen and also Facebook, um, Instagram at Ultra Runner. That's a long story there, but you, you will find out if you follow me on Instagram. So feel free to give me a follow, um, send me a DM if, if you have any questions. Um, I love to talk farming and agriculture, and I really appreciate you having me on today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mike. Have a great harvest. Well, again, a big thank you there to Mike. Certainly a lot of weather challenges that he has been dealing with this year, Tanner. And I had not realized that where he farms there in Nebraska ranked in the top 10 counties in the entire U.S. Yeah, that is a fun statistic to hang your hat on and uh, something to be proud of, certainly by geographic location. I still think Iowa corn is better. That's fair. Everybody (laughs) probably thinks that about their own crop. Oh, that's great. But what a good Friday episode for our listeners. I hope everybody has a great weekend and make sure you catch us next week as we get geared up for Farm Progress Show the week after. So for now, what do you say, Delaney? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. (laughs) 